a listener production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. In this episode, you ask me the questions in what we call Ask Adam Anything. If you're a budding entrepreneur, established founder, or business professional, and want to ask us a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com, and we'd love to get you on the show. Now, on to our first question. Hey, Adam, this is Arun from Mumbai. I've been working on the startup idea for some time and want to bring on board a co-founder. What are your thoughts on uh, bringing on board someone who you know well, um, who you have a personal relationship with, uh, versus someone completely new, uh, whose skill sets obviously align with your requirements, uh, but who's essentially a relationship that you start from scratch? Thanks. Thank you, Arun, for that question. I love India. I visited India for the one and only time. Uh, it was about three years ago. Our Luxury Escape's very first international market was actually the Indian market. Uh, we, we chose India for a couple of reasons, actually, but, but its proximity to, to Asia, its huge, uh, its huge population, and, and actually the biggest English-speaking population in the world, I think. So it's actually a, a really interesting market for, for online and for e-commerce. It's a huge e-commerce market. Businesses like Flipkart, uh, PayTM, which actually stands for Pay Through Mobile, which actually recently listed, uh, and actually didn't list too well, but recently listed in Zomato is another one. So there's been some incredible businesses coming out of India. Uh, it's certainly behind China in development of the online market, but it's certainly been a, a really interesting market to watch. So you know, back back to the question, uh, working on a, a startup, Arun, and you're, you're wondering, should you bring on a co-founder and, and what kind of co-founder should you bring on? Uh, so I think I look back to so our business and, and I started the business with my my best mate from school, a guy called Jeremy. So we knew each other for, for a long time. So very much uh, one route that often happens is, is two, two friends who start a business together versus the opposite, which is, is two people who aren't friends. And you obviously ask that question. So when we look at the, the business we started, we actually started a series of businesses. So our very first business wasn't an online business at all. It was a very offline business. And we, we both brought effectively our sweat equity to that business. So we had capital and sweat equity. So in, in one sense, having a partner is... is is more than just bringing complementary skills. It actually, brings a couple other things. It brings it brings cash because often you need to start the business with, with effectively the very first pre-seed money, which is always family, friends, or, or yourself. So if you've got two co-founders or three co-founders, you can actually fund the business a bit more easily with with the two or three of you. So that's it's one thing that often is forgotten. And there actually is no more important decision a founder makes than choosing another co-founder. Uh, if you choose one at all, it's probably the the key decision to make can make or break a business, uh, and and having the right co-founder is incredibly important. So if you look at, uh, I'll look at Jeremy and myself example. So we are obviously great friends, but have very different skill sets. So Jeremy is a very strategic thinker, not super operational, but but certainly thinks two, three, four steps ahead. Uh, I like to be strategic as well, but but uh, am very hands-on operational. So the two skills come up actually really helpful. And Jeremy was always, certainly in the early days of the business, he had a very strong risk appetite and was always very keen to push me to do stuff. I was a former lawyer, so I potentially had a slightly lower risk appetite, certainly for an entrepreneur. So having the two 
contrary risk appetites. And Jeremy pushed me to do a lot of things that maybe we wouldn't have done. So even though I'm the more operational part of the duo now, having the different risk tolerances was incredibly important. And had Jeremy not pushed us and pushed me to do things in the early days, we wouldn't be where we, we got to. So there's a number of different sort of secret skill sets that founders bring. And if you look at Eileen Lee, she did her her famous uh, study of unicorns. So this is, I think, back in 2013. And Eileen looked at what's the characteristics of the founders of who create unicorns. Uh, and if you look at the, the great the great online business or the great business itself, they tend to be founded by two people. And when Eileen looked at it, it was actually two males often. And it's probably changed a little bit now with a lot more female founders coming through. But back in 2013, it was two 30-year-old tertiary educated males. So it was very much the homogenous uh, founding duo, and, and it certainly is changing now for, for the better. But there's a reason why two co-founders work so well is because you bring complementary skills. That's really important. So uh, and if you look at the great founding teams, Apple was Jobs and Wozniak, uh, Snapchat was Bobby and Evan, uh, Microsoft was uh, Gates and, and Paul Allen, uh, Canva was obviously uh, Cliff and Mel, uh, Lassie and Scott and Mike. So these great uh, founding teams, so often two or three founders. And, and that isn't a, isn't a coincidence. Many VCs, if you look at Paul Graham at Y Combinator, Y Combinator almost won't let you in unless you have a co-founder in, in most cases. And Paul Graham's one of the great uh, angel investor incubators in, in the world. So there's, I, I tend to agree that, that having a co-founder is super important. Obviously, the downside is you're splitting your equity in half, but it really is a one plus one equals three situation. So whilst you're giving up equity, uh, you're getting a lot in return. So in terms of bringing on a co-founder, absolutely bring on one if you can. Uh, but what you want to make sure is you bring on the right co-founder because bringing on the wrong co-founder is, is worse than not bringing on a co-founder at all. So I guess the question, your, your original question is, should you bring on someone you know or someone you don't know? So obviously my, my experience was with someone I know with complementary skills, which is the perfect situation. The, the next best situation is someone you don't know with complementary skills. So there's no point bringing on a mirror image of yourself. There's, there's often no point, it's no point having two strategic people running a business or two tech people running a business necessarily. If you can have one sales, one tech, one operational, one strategic, that, that tends to work really well. You can bounce off each other well, you can correct each other, but you're not effectively doing the same stuff and you're not bringing the same skills. So it really is a bit of a, a, a trade-off there, but I, I'd focus on bringing someone who aligns with you in terms of skill set rather than bringing someone who you happen to know. But if you can get both, all the better. So so in short, there isn't a straightforward answer, but overall, having a co-founder, better than not, having a complementary skill set is essential. And whether you know them or not, yeah, it doesn't make a huge difference as long as the other two are satisfied. And there are actually incubators like Antler who, who will bring together co-founders who don't know each other at all. So that, that's, a, that's another really interesting way to look at it. So Antler effectively incubates uh, product managers with developers, with salespeople, with marketing people, and they'll put people together, could be two, three, four co-founders, put people together who are highly complementary. And that, that's worked really well. Like, I'm a very small LP in Antler in Australia, and their returns look look excellent. So there isn't... There's never a set path to starting a company. Uh, different different things work for different people and different founding teams. But but generally speaking, uh, if you can have a complementary founder, it's, it's certainly far better. We essentially had myself and Jeremy, and then we brought on two other effectively co-founders later on, uh, Mark and Josh, both again bringing very different skills. So Mark brought amazing negotiation scales, scale skills. Um, he was an incredible thinker outside the box. And Josh was an incredible product manager, great hire of people. 
and really understood how to run a business as well. So all four of us brought completely different skills to the business. And, and without question, uh, we all brought something. So without the four of us, the business wouldn't be where, where it is today. So certainly, Arun, you're definitely thinking about the right way. Think about your founder in, intently. Make sure you get the right person. If there is someone you know who've known for a long time with great complementary skills, certainly go with them. Thanks for your question. Hi, Adam. Um, Henry from Sydney here. I'm interested in investing in early stage startups. What two factors do you look for when determining whether you'll get involved in a business? And how does this differ if it's pre or post revenue? Thanks and love the show. Thank you, Henry. Great question. And, and what a beautiful city Sydney is. We have our biggest office was in Sydney for a number of years. Now we have a bigger office in, in Melbourne in Australia, but we have a, a lot of people still in Sydney uh, and most of our, or the majority of our customers are in Sydney. So it's certainly a, a very important city for our business and a city I love to visit uh, with its incredible beaches and, and certainly one of the most beautiful cities I've been to. Investing in early stage, what factors do you look for? This is actually a really good question. Uh, and it's a really relevant question because I think for two reasons. One, investing in startups is a lot more accessible now than, it, than it's ever been. And two, investing in other assets is becoming increasingly difficult. And the reason why is interest rates are essentially below zero at zero around the world. And what that means is money is cheap. So investors have much lower return expectations. And when that happens, they bid up the price of things. So if you look at a number of assets, so Public share market is certainly one, but then you look at other assets like real estate, both residential and office, even office through COVID has still remained fairly strong, but certainly residential real estate in most Western countries continues to skyrocket. Australian real estate is incredibly expensive. American real estate is incredibly expensive. Hot cities like London and, and Moscow continue to, to, to go up in price. Arts at record levels. So most assets and obviously crypto Bitcoin's increased hundreds of percent in the last year alone. So we've seen a massive appreciation in almost every single asset class. The only exception to that really is, is startups. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first point is there's a lot more supply of startups than there is demand, as in there is, there is cash, than there is demand from, from largely venture capitalists, but also family office. And it's a very disorganized market with, with significant information asymmetry. Let's think about those two things uh, one at a time. So the, I'll look at Australia for a start because it's probably most prominent in Australia, more so than the US, but the supply-demand imbalance is extreme in Australia. What do you think about it? There's only sort of, there's less than 10 leading venture capital firms in Australia. You've got your big firms like Blackbird, Nikki Skavek was on the, on the show last year. Uh, you've got SquarePeg, which Paul Bassett, who's also been on the show, was on. And you've got Airtree as, as three of the probably the biggest uh, venture capitalists in Australia. And you've got your, a very impressive uh, next tier of Our Innovation Fund, of Rampersand, of Aura, of Equity uh, Venture Partners, some very, very good VCs who probably have more sort of $100 million funds versus the big ones that are more like 500 now. And you've got another tier of, of smaller, more boutique VCs. Uh, so very when you think probably 10 VCs, and each VC can maybe make 10, maybe 15 investments a year. So if you think about it, it's probably only a few hundred Australian businesses, uh, early stage businesses getting funded by Australian venture capitalists. There's probably 10,000 Australian startups out there. So there's a massive supply demand imbalance. Venture capitalists can only invest in so many businesses for a couple of reasons. A, they like to be often get on the board and help these businesses. 
And there's only so many boards that venture capital partners can be on. There's also isn't that much money in venture capital compared to public markets. So whilst it's becoming a, a more popular asset class for for uh, wholesale investors like superannuation funds, it still is quite small. It's only a minority of, of their funds invested. So there's actually a relatively small amount of cash chasing a large number of opportunities. And also if you look at the type of investments VCs historically make, and this is this relates to the type of uh, firms VCs are and what they do for their limited partners or their LPs, is that the VCs tend to try and want to get outsized returns. So you want to try and find a Canva, you want to try and find an Atlassian who actually wasn't VC backed. You want to try and find a Google or a Facebook who's got to return 100, 200, 500 times. If you can put a million dollars in and get 500 times back like Sequoia did with WhatsApp or Google, that essentially returns the fund and the venture capitalists get 20% of the upside. It's an amazing result. What they don't want is a lot of okay results because it's a lot of work for not that much return versus an annual investor who is actually happy to get a 2x return or a 3x return because essentially you're comparing, when I'm, when I'm an angel investing, I'm comparing my angel investment return to what I can get on the public markets. And if I can get a 50 or 40 or 50% return uh, across a, a portfolio of, of angel investments, I'm really happy with that because it's a, a really strong risk-adjusted risk return. But VCs don't think that way, and, and there's a reason for it, and that, they like that around the world. It's not just Australia. So you've got a very big, as a result, supply-demand imbalance that probably 99% of early-stage businesses don't get funded. So there's a lot of fantastic businesses out there that should be funded, but simply aren't. So hence, if you're an investor looking to invest in, in any asset class, the only one that's left that hasn't been debauched in some way is early stage. So hence, I, I love it for the supply-demand imbalance, but there's also an information asymmetry in that public markets have a lot of information. So they are what's called efficient markets to many, any student of finance will learn what was efficient market theory. And, and that basically says that all the information out there is priced into a, into the share price. And it's not 100%, but it's pretty good because there's so many people investing in shares and so much information out there. Versus early stage where it's not like that at all. Often an early stage founder will only see a handful of people. So that early stage founder hasn't got full price discovery and also doesn't have the opportunity to get full price discovery. So if, if, you're, if you're the only one to see a company or not many people have seen that business, then you have a, a, an information advantage that you don't get in the public markets or the real estate market. So there is, there's two reasons why I love early stage investing. I look at some of the investments uh, I've made over the last five years. I invested, me, myself and Jeremy invested in a business called Blue Thumb, which is Australia's largest online art gallery, so bluethumb.com. We were invested in these guys and they were turning over maybe $20,000, $20,000 a week. They, they, they turn over almost a million dollars a week now. So we've seen a huge increase in revenue. We've been able to support these guys. I've been on the board of this business for a number of years. We saw that they were a, a exceptional founders and, and working in a really, an in, industry with lots of great tailwinds, uh, which is the couple of things we look for. So we love the story. We love the narrative. We've backed them. They're profitable now. Uh, it's been a fantastic story. I invested re more recently in a business called Officely, and this is a business that I came across very serendipitously. I, I met the founder through uh, Hezzy Leibovich, who's one of the founders of Catch of the Day. Hezzy happened to buy the founder's father-in-law's house, so of all things, and he was uh, launching a travel startup, actually, and the travel startup due to COVID uh, stopped, and he pivoted to another business called Officely, which is essentially helps businesses manage their return to work, and, and I, I love the founder. I love Max. I thought he's, he's an incredible founder. He pivoted brilliantly during COVID and created a business that was growing 20 or 30 or 40% a month. Most people didn't get to see this. I only happened to see this business through pure chance. 
And I saw how good the founder was. I could use my experience as a founder to recognize this was a really good founder. And 99.999% of people wouldn't have been able to have access to the investment, but, but I could get access. And later, uh, there was Steve Baxter's VC firm came in and, and several other well-known uh, investors came in. But I was extremely lucky to get that. And it was purely information asymmetry. Similarly, I invested in a business called Unyoked, which was uh, about three years ago. And this is a business that actually went to a lot of VCs. So VCs saw this business, but it was a, and these guys do t- two incredible founders, Chris and Cam, they do tiny houses around Australia and they, they get the house built. It costs about $70,000 and they put a house in on a farm or, or by, a, by a river or somewhere. So it's almost like a, a five-star version of camping. And I certainly saw the opportunity. There was a, a really big business called Getaway in the US, which has got a very strong valuation, does a really similar thing. Uh, so the the TAM is big, and obviously I understand the, the travel industry because of because of my business. So love the founders, love the sector, love the narrative, and but it wasn't a business that venture capitalists like because it wasn't a tech-heavy business. And these guys have just done an incredible job. They're booked out for months in advance. They just understand how to run the business, and there's a huge addressable market out there. So this is a business that probably will 10 or 20x that VCs didn't like because it just didn't, didn't fit that neat narrative they have to tell their LPs. Finally, uh, we invested in a business called Amazing Co. Again, this is a VC-backed business as well. And I followed a great VC business investor called MacDoc. Uh, and, and they went in early. We, I came in similarly. It's also had investment from the founders of Aconex uh, and some other really impressive uh, backers into this business. Again, love the founders, love the story. And the founders pivoted the business completely. This just shows why if you're investing in startups, you back a founder. Uh, in my case, I back a founder more than I back a sector and more than I back a narrative even. And I love Jeremy and Sylvia. I thought they were amazing founders and they've done exactly what good founders do. They, 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 saw, they had a business that was going all right and they saw an opportunity to grow an even bigger business. And this is a business that's grown extremely rapidly. They're now scaling through the US and the UK and even through COVID, which didn't help their business at all, have done incredibly well and in a much bigger business following COVID. So another great example of, of having an opportunity and backing a founder and getting an outsized return for a relatively low risk. So yeah, I love investing in, in uh, early stage. And to your final question, how does it differ pre or post revenue? Uh, and that really depends on what stage of investing you're looking at. Generally in Australia, most investors do like to see revenue. In the US, they're much more tolerant of pre-revenue businesses. And it sort of depends on the stage. You're like, me as an investor, I'm sort of a series A, maybe a series B investor. And by that stage, businesses generally have revenue and some, some even have profitability, but certainly have revenue, have what we call unit economics. So we can see what the cost of a customer is. We can see what the margin they're getting uh, from customers and we can see a run rate as well. So as you get later stage and as you get more revenue and closer to profitability, you pay a premium for that. So investors want certainty. So if you're willing to take a bigger chance, if you're investing in someone who's pre-revenue, you get a much lower valuation. So there's much more upside but there's also much more risk attached. So it really depends on your personal risk level. If you're investing in a seed portfolio, most seed investors invest a smaller amounts in more businesses. So a business like a VC, like first round out of San Francisco tends to have a lot of investee businesses. Reason being there's more likely these businesses won't make it. When they do make it, first round famously invested in Uber, they get it. 10,000 times return. So there is a lot of upside investing in, in, in a, a very early stage, but you've got to be able to see a lot of businesses. It's certainly a full-time job, very early stage investing. If, you are, if you're willing to sort of invest more Series A, Series B, which is more my neck of the woods as a, as a typical angel investor, uh, you can invest a lot less and see a lot less. So I probably see 50 to 100 different 
opportunities a year, whereas VCs will see a thousand plus easily, if not more. So, and bigger VCs far more. So it really depends on, on A, how much money you have to invest, how much risk appetite you have, uh, and what you're looking for. But I, I think the, the perfect sweet spot for me is series A, because you're you de-risk risk to an extent on the basis that companies have revenue and you can see a degree of product market fit, but there is still a lot of upside. You can still get 20, 30, 50, 100 X returns quite easily. I'm not saying you always get it, but you can quite easily get big returns uh, because the market doesn't fully understand these businesses or hasn't ever seen it. But thank you for your question. Hi, this is Matt from Austin, Texas. Thank you for taking my question. I really enjoyed learning about the uh, success you've managed being bootstrapped with Luxury Escapes. Um, I have a two-part question around growth companies. First, how do you determine what payback period is most optimal for a new customer? How do you know if you're being too aggressive or too conservative? And a follow-up kind of related to that, how much cash is too much or too little on a balance sheet? for a growth stage company. Matt from Austin, thank you for your question. And clearly, you know a bit about marketing. I absolutely love Austin. I actually absolutely love Texas as a whole. One of the, if not the most underrated parts of the US and possibly the world, Austin obviously has is, is become incredibly popular, really on the back of South by Southwest. Uh, and and it's an incredible city. And, and Houston, which is where I lived for, for a few months, about 15 years ago, is also a lovely city, uh, known as being a bit of an oil, sort of oil city, but an incredible city as well. Great food city, great food town, some great universities, uh, NASA's based out there. So actually a really good city and, and great for innovation. Uh, so Texas, very underrated. Uh, so back to your question, payback period. So let, let's go back and say, what is a payback period? So for those of you who haven't had, had much experience in startups, payback period is essentially the time it takes to pay back the cost of acquisition. And by cost of acquisition, that we're talking about there is how much it costs a business to acquire a new user or a new purchaser. And every small business, so every startup needs to acquire customers. And there's, there's effectively three ways to acquire a customer. And that can be SEO, word of mouth, uh, family and friends, or paid. So some businesses can get, can use sort of call it free acquisition and free acquisition very well, but for most businesses, you need to use some form of paid acquisition, and that can be in the form of SEM, uh, which is effectively advertising search engine marketing, via, usually via Google, uh, or you can do effectively brand marketing. That's, that's, that's either via social, so Facebook uh, or Instagram, or you can do affiliate marketing, which is sort of a hybrid in a way in which you pay people like influencers or, or websites, and often you can give them a cut or a cost per acquisition or simply a, a cost per million uh, impressions. There's multiple different ways to, to get new customers, but essentially it all boils down to the same thing in that you are spending money to get a certain number of customers. And let's say you spend $1,000 and you get 10 customers. doesn't matter which, which you, what you've used to get that. But if you spend $1,000, you've got 10 customers, then you've got a CPA or a cost per acquisition of $100. So what Matt's asking with regards to payback period is, is how long does it take for those customers to make you $100 in margin? So if I'm selling holidays, as we do, and we sell a holiday for $2,000 and our margin is 10%, for example, my margin per sale is $200. So how long does it take me if I, if I uh, spend $400 on acquisition, uh, I need that person to buy on average two things. How long does it take them to buy two things? So in, in the case of Luxury Escapes, we actually have a very short payback period. 
uh, because we're a bootstrap business. So it very much depends on the type of business you are. So some businesses like Uber Eats or like Amazon tend to have very long payback periods. And that's because they know or they're very confident that their customers will come back to them again and again and again. And in case of Amazon, in the case of Amazon, their, cu- their cohorts or their customer base gets stronger the more they buy. So it's like, almost like a network business where the, the more people using it, the, the stronger the use case is. And, and Amazon isn't is a network business, but there's definitely net, similar scale benefits there as you see in a network business. So if you look at what Amazon or all the rocket back businesses, businesses like the Iconic, uh, look at how they operate. They tend to operate on a four to five year payback period. So they might spend two to $3,000 potentially as much as that acquiring customers because they know that over f- four or five years, that customer will spend or effectively contribute margin of that much and then they'll have the customer. So that, they're confident that their product is so good, customers will continue to come back and back and back and actually come back more frequently. And you certainly see that with businesses like Uber Eats, like Deliveroo, uh, like DoorDash. And that's why they're actually valued very highly by by VCs and by the public market is because they've got ex- excellent cohort activity. So when you say what payback period is optimal, what I, the answer to that is it very much depends on the business. If you've got a SaaS business, you can have a much longer payback period to if you've got a co- uh, transactional e-commerce business. So look at the, eventually what you need to do is look at your lifetime value. So how much will that customer spend in their lifetime with your business and look at the profit on first purchase. So the first time, the first time they buy from you, if you're selling uh, microphones for $500 each and making $200 margin, your profit on first purchase is $200. So if you're running an e-commerce store, you ideally want to keep your cost of acquisition below 200. So your payback period is on the first purchase because you never know if these person's going to buy another microphone from you again. In many cases, they won't. The problem many business many businesses have, and this is how so many businesses fall over and don't make it, is the, they spend too much on customer acquisition and never get it paid back. So if you spend $1,000 acquiring a customer and that customer never spends $1,000 with your business, your business will die. It's, it's inevitable that will happen. So having a really good understanding of unit economics and payback periods is, is really important. And the fact that you're asking the question, Matt, shows you you already have an understanding of that. Uh, and in terms of how do you know if you're being too aggressive or conservative, it really goes down to those unit economics. Are you, uh, is your payback period being covered by your, your margin? And is your lifetime value estimation holding up? Are customers coming back time and time again? If you spend $1,000 buying a customer and you're only making $100 per purchase, but that customer comes back 20 times in the first two months, that's a really good idea that you can keep spending a lot on, on customer acquisition. So look at how regular they come back. Look at the churn. If you've got a SaaS business or if you've got a, uh, a business someone subscribes to, how long are they staying subscribed till they churn? And you want to make sure you're making money off the lifetime of that customer. Otherwise, your business will unfortunately die. I think the second part of that question is, and it is somewhat related uh, to your first question is how much cash is too much or too little for a growth stage company? And that actually is a really interesting question, Matt. And the reason being is you don't want to have too much cash in the business. If you've got too much cash in the business, you're probably not growing fast enough and you won't get a good valuation at your next funding round, or you might not get a funding round at all because the most important thing to most investors is growth. Investors love seeing growth because growth solves almost all ills. If you're not making money now, but you double your revenue and you will be, that's that overrides the fact you're not making money now. And investors are smart enough to look past what you're doing now and look at what you're doing in next year or the year after, or most great investors are anyway. So that is a really important part of the equation. How fast are you growing? 
and how much cash you have. So you don't have too much cash. On the flip side, you're better off having too much cash than too little cash. Cash is life in a business. And the way that every business dies is they run out of cash. So if you've got cash, you've got a business. So then the next question is how much cash should I have? Because you don't want to have too much cash that we talked about because you want to be growing as fast as you can. You don't have too little cash. So generally, most businesses tend to raise, when you raise around, you want to have enough run rate or enough runway for 12 to 18 months. So let's say your business is burning $100,000 a month and that burn is dropping as you grow revenue. You probably want to raise about 1.5 to 1.8 million, which gets you to that sort of 12 to 18 months. And if you can keep growing your revenue to catch up to your burn, that's even better. So if you can if you can grow your revenue $100,000 over that period, suddenly you're not burning any, anything at all. And you can go to the market saying, I, I'm actually at cash flow break even. I'm investing, I, I want to raise again for future growth. I want a higher valuation. So the more runway you have, the better. So generally the, the rule of thumb is raise 12 to 18 months of runway. And when you get to six months or even before six months, certainly how I think about it is as soon as I finish my current round, I'm looking at the next round. So I'm looking to where the puck's going. How can I raise enough money to make sure I'm always, I've always got enough runway? So as soon as you finish your round, start thinking about the next round, not necessarily start selling the next round, but certainly when you get to six months runway, you want to be well into your funding round. You always want to try and keep six months runway. So that means probably oh, even nine, nine to 12 months out from running out of cash, start raising cash, start having conversations with your existing backers. Are they going to come again? Will, will you have that backstop? And then start speaking to new investors. So a lot of investing, a lot of investors uh, are limited by stage. So sometimes you might have a seed stage investor who might love the business, but has a mandate for seed, can't invest in your series A. You need to find new investors. That's going to take time. So I always err towards being slightly conservative. Think ahead. You don't want to get to two or three months away, not have funding locked in. And then you have to start begging for money. And suddenly you lose a lot of negotiating power. VCs are, are smart people. They can sense, and they're also trying to work for their LPs and themselves. They want to maximize the return they get to a large extent. And while VCs will claim to be founder-friendly and, and be interested in the founder, and they are to an extent, what's really important for them is getting the right price. So if you leave it to the last minute, to two or three months, and you're groveling for VCs, first you'll lose the ability for, to create FOMO. So there's a risk you don't raise money at all. But if even if you are able to raise money, there's also a massive risk that you you simply get done over in valuation. So the earlier you can invest, the earlier you can raise the money with strong growth rates and plenty of cushion, the better. So let's say you raise a million dollars, burning a hundred thousand dollars a month. You want to start raising almost straight away. You don't want to get to your last hundred grand and be desperate to raise money because suddenly you're going to be doing a down round. You can't grow how you want to grow, and and things start unraveling. So unfortunately, for for many founders, raising money is a fundamental part of the role. And if you can't raise money, the business dies. It's almost more important in many ways than actually running the business. Uh, so many of the great founders, Travis Kalanick, for example, was incredible at raising money. wasn't so good at running Uber, but he was great at raising money. So eventually, uh, Travis had to leave Uber because for various reasons, but ultimately as an operator, he simply wasn't very good. He's, he's obviously gone and done other things and, and will be very successful. But uh, the ability to create a narrative, the ability to raise money is a core competency of every founder these days. And you need to be able to raise money, time that ra- time those raises well, and ensure you can stay ahead of the curve. And that's it for this edition of Ask Adam Anything. Thanks so much for your questions. If you'd like to submit a question, please send a voice recording to info at adamschwab.com. If you're a founder, young professional, or just someone interested in the world of business, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you.
producers are Lindsey Green and Ed Gooden. And this has been From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.